0: Hi everyone, welcome back. Our guest today, Jason Tabrias, is an expert in the field of economics and public policy. Jason has worked extensively within the public sector, spending many years working at the Department of the Premier and Cabinet of WA and Victoria, as well as the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet of New Zealand. Not only that, Jason has a long working history in consulting, spending many years in some of the world's largest consulting firms such as PwC, Deloitte and now Accenture. Jason has a wealth of experience and knowledge and is currently the Director of Economic Insights Team at Accenture Strategy. The Economic Insights Team specializes in combining strategy consulting, data science and economics to solve issues such as the future of work, social services, economic recovery and climate change. Hi, Jason, and welcome to the podcast. Hi,
1: thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great. Well, first of all, thank you for so much um, for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Um, To start off, Jason, if you could please give our listeners a quick introduction as to who you are and how you came to work in consulting.
2: Yeah, great. Um, So who I am, principally, uh, I'm a husband and father, so that's probably (laughs) the core of what um, I see myself as. Um, I have two kids and I live uh, here in in Melbourne. Um, My journey to consulting uh, was probably not so straightforward um, I started out um, studying marketing as an undergraduate, and I never really worked in that field. Um, I grew up in Perth, and um, Perth uh, is a relatively small town compared to a lot of others, and it doesn't really have the range of big end of, of um, organizations that you might get in bigger cities. And aside from the, the mining, um, mm-hmm. which dominates that, uh, that city, the other big thing that was going on was government. Um, and if you really wanted to work in things that were really big, that was, that was a really big option. And so for me, that's kind of how I found my way, um, into working, um, in, in areas that were having a big public impact. Mm -hmm. Um, and then from there, I wanted to move to the UK and do things that were a bit, um, bigger. It's a fairly common path for people. And, um, my transition into consulting was as an expert in, in government and government issues. So, at the time, there was a lot of work going on in um, in technology and the application of, of technology to um, to government, and I um, found myself working at PwC uh, in in the UK in a part of the consulting world that was focused on on public sector services and um, and strategy and public sector.
1: Yeah, right. And so, yeah, in our research, you have clearly a wealth of experience working in both public and private sector. Um, just what was your experience like working in both of those sectors? Um, what were some of the big differences that you saw? Yeah, I mean,
2: maybe one of the things to start with there is how similar the sectors are. Mm. Um, and I think one of the things that is a fairly common misconception is that there are kind of worlds apart. And maybe what I would offer from my experience is that kind of all organisations that get to a certain size... Have characteristics that are shared. Mm. Um, characteristics of the, of you know um, working with people who you really don't know, wow. um, being put in situations where you've got um, new challenges all of the time, um, working in an organisation where people do things that are very different to what you do because the organisation is so large, uh, and of course the kind of internal bureaucracy and management that's required to um, overlay on an organisation that's that's that big. That's true of of the big consulting firms, and it's pro- and it's true of governments um, yeah. too. I think kind of obviously um, there are there are kind of fairly key differences um, but it's also a little bit about where you find yourself so maybe um, one one thing to point out about my experience in government is that I've always worked in central agencies, so you know in close to the uh, the seat of power, but also in roles where you're doing very different things all of the time and I've chosen that because that's kind of what stimulates me and gives me interest. I like switching up. I like being able to solve new problems. And I've always identified that as something that, uh, even from a very young age, helped me to get stay engaged with work. Uh, and to that extent, that kind of work in government um, is not so different from consulting. Mm. Um, new projects come along with new clients and new challenges. Uh, there's no different from a new public policy issue popping up. Um, right. And... Um, Some of the skill sets and maybe mindsets are fairly similar in that. Now, that's not necessarily true of all government, Mm -hmm.
1: but certainly true of the parts of government that I've worked in. Right. Okay, cool. And so you spoke quickly just then about um, central agencies. Um, Could you just talk a little bit more about what that is?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, most Western governments are structured in a similar fashion, which is that you have um, what you might call line agencies that do a lot of the delivery of services, So that might be, in the context of Victoria, um, the Department of of Health, um, Department of um, Justice, you know, education and so on, right? And they're really focused on their sector and the delivery of the services in their sector. And then you have central agencies that are really focused on the management of government itself. And the two obvious examples, they, they vary from government to government, but the two obvious examples are the Department of the Premier or Prime Minister or whatever the head of government is. Which, because has a kind of cross-cutting role across all of government, and essentially a kind of a management role on top of that, and um, Treasury, which is you know really responsible for the collection and and more the spending of uh, of funds, mm. and those two agencies really work hand in hand. Sometimes there's a finance agency uh, that's part of that same trifecta. Sometimes, uh, for example, in the New Zealand context, there's a an organisation called State Services, which is also part of that central agencies group. But those those agencies are qualitatively different from delivery agencies where um, in all cases you're looking at some degree of management and oversight, you're de- looking at strategic issues, you're trying to coordinate different parts of government, so health works with education and justice works with community services and so forth. And you're also charged with issues of things like looking out at the long term or, or dealing with um, issues of, of good governance or what have you and reform. So those are the things that are all really interesting to me. um, And that's really where I've focused my attention and my career in working in public services.
0: Yeah. So so just circling back to your work at Alpha Beta, which markets itself as a strategic economics focused consulting firm, I was hoping that you could give us a little bit of an explanation as to what that means and how it may differ from traditional consulting firms.
2: Yeah, that's right. So um, just for listeners that may not Understand the background. So I work for Accenture in a group called the Economic Insights Group, uh, and that group was principally formed by the acquisition um, of a consulting firm called Alpha Beta, uh, which was started many years ago. Um, and when Alpha Beta started, it's it's um, uh, the way that it came to be was as a reflection on principally people who were working in government, understanding that they needed information about how to run. The government, and they didn't have the information that they needed, the data that they needed to make good decisions quickly. A lot of this, the genesis of the idea, came from the global financial crisis. When, um, if we wind back to that time, we had, um, you know, a, a lot of people uh, in in and businesses in situations where they were at risk, and governments needed to intervene in major ways, whether it was um, macro stimulation, whether it was think- involvements in. Uh, in financial markets and stepping in to support uh, businesses that were about to fail. One of the challenges of people that were uh, in key decision-making roles, um, in this case, in the Prime Minister's Department or in Treasury at the time, was that when they would, for example, decide to stimulate the economy to by by you know, releasing large amounts of money or spending a lot on, say, infrastructure or other stimulus payments, they weren't able to see quickly what effect that was having in the economy. They knew from economic theory that the kinds of effects that it should have, but in a way, um, waiting for, for example, official statistics to see what has that done to employment? What has that done to household consumption? What has that done to um, to hiring and, and business activity? Use, waiting for the ABS to do their you know surveys every so often to say, well, this is working, was not the timeliness that you needed to be able to run
1: Yeah, it takes a long time for them to do this. Exactly. The lag
2: was was really significant. And the insight of um, the founder of Alpha Beta at the time was that there were potentially other data sets that were maybe not quite as statistically accurate, but they were much more timely uh, and pretty pretty good in terms of their um, ability to tell you what's going on in the economy. And if we could get our hands on that data um, and then manipulate it in a way that was useful we'd be able to know whether our policies were working. And, and that was the insight. So what Alphabeta did when it started up was essentially take that idea and expand on it. So using data at the core and economics, saying, well, what are the problems that governments need to solve now? What are the problems that businesses need to solve now? And how can we use data, but usually really high-frequency data sets that don't rely on kind of a long, lag times, to be able to tell you something now? And of course, during COVID, um, a lot of that came to bear, right? A lot of those similar issues of um, a stagnating economy, people's health at risk, communities um, and mental health issues. And um, so what's different about what Alpha Beta does and, and what uh, Alpha Beta did, sorry, and what the Economic Insights practice of Accenture does now um, is that we kind of start with the data and we and we say, well, what, can, what questions can we answer? Let's give you an example of that. During COVID, we were... Um, asked to look at similar kinds of concepts, what are the um, impacts of, say, the job seeker or other stimulus payments, how are they working? And we were able to take anonymized data sets about consumer spending behavior and be able to work out, well, if you were in receipt of this particular benefit, were you spending it? Mm. What, what things were you spending it on? Um, and how well is that actually working to stimulate the economy? And we were able to do that and kind of real time. We could tell you kind of wow. the next day or the day after, not months and months and months. So the kind of insight that happened during the global financial crisis, the desire to do something in this space, but the kind of frustrations that you weren't able to, we were able to do that now. And we do that um, as, as the core of, of what we offer today. And, that, and that's what um, is really different about the economic insights practice today is, is that we take that idea and we bring that to life. For organisations, whether they be governments or
1: businesses, mm. and you spoke um, just briefly about like the high frequency data that um, kind of differs from like you know the ABS and kind of like the census and stuff. Mm. Um, and you said that during COVID you had used anonymous consumer spending um, data. What are some other examples that you know maybe Alphabet might have used, or that you guys at Economic Insights use?
2: Yeah, um, so the consumer spending data is a really big one. The other is we have um, access to anonymized data about. The inflows and outflows of information of small businesses, in fact, yeah. small to medium businesses, a very really important part of our economy, because in many cases those small businesses are individuals, um, or they are um, you know organized businesses that have a don't have the deep capital to be able to withstand long periods of um, you know going without um, funds. So those two data sets, the data sets about what's happening with the activity of small to medium businesses in Australia. And the activity about what's happening in um, credit and consumer spending mm-hmm. cover very large um, parts of our um, uh, of our society, mm-hmm. and then of course we do have access to information like the ABS, etc., and use mm-hmm. those in similar ways. So rather than maybe looking at things like the census data, yep. or in addition to things like the census data, there are other data sets. Um, such as Blade, which is a longitudinal study of um, businesses and, their, and the, the data that's um, held by businesses, so employees, turnover, the amount right. they spend on various things like um, procurement supplies, I mean obviously specific information like where they're located, um, you know, what type of industry they're in. Mm-hmm. It, th- those types of data sets become really, really important to us to be able to pull together data right. from various sources and be able to um, provide insights to our clients, right?
1: kind of like stitch together an image of what's happening.
2: Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) what's going on, yeah. Being able to pull together um, data from different sources. Um, Sometimes we use a combination of that high frequency data uh, as well as um, more traditional data sets. And we apply them to problems that really matter. So a a great recent example was um, a program here in Victoria um, that started out being called the Secure Work Pilot. It's now called the, um, the Victorian Sick Pay Guarantee. And this is amongst one of the first efforts in the world to provide sick and carers leave to people for whom they don't get that through their job. That might be people who are casuals, um, people who are contractors, people who are in the gig economy. And a lot of them, um, for example, um, include students, and international students in particular. And you'll understand that those people were disproportionately affected um, in COVID, um, they didn't qualify for Jobseeker uh, because they weren't part of an official arrangement in terms of employment, uh, but were very vulnerable. And so we were able to use data um, from a range of sources, including the sources I mentioned, to be able to work out who are the most insecure people um, in terms of and how vulnerable are they? Which industries do they work in? Um, are they females overrepresented? Are people from um, you know different cultural and diverse backgrounds overrepresented? And how could we best support those people um, through, the, through the program? And so what we did with the Victorian government was help them use the, that data to work out um, yeah, where, which industry should be targeted, which people should be targeted with the program as it rolls out. Uh, and that's now underpinning the rollout of the Victorian sick pay guarantee. So, you know, great example of how the data informs really interesting um, business and economic applications, but with a really strong social outcome.
0: Yeah. So um. So since then, Alpha Beta has been acquired by Accenture. What was your experience like when that happened?
2: Yeah. I mean, um, in a way, we're still going through that process, right? The um, processes of, of acquisition may legally happen on one day, but mm-hmm. in practice, there's a gradual, um, uh, you know, there's a gradual series of steps into which that occurs. Um, and firstly, uh, we we um, stopped using the Alpha Beta. Um, brand uh, and transitioned to the Accenture brand. Um, we were you know, working in Accenture offices and no longer had our own. And um, right now, you would say that we're an indistinguishable part of the Accenture strategy practice. So we use the economic insights term and branding where it's important to our clients to distinguish us from strategy work like tech strategy or mergers and acquisition strategy. Although organizationally, Um, People who do that work sit in the same area as us, they're our peers, we have the same kind of criteria for professional development and and those kinds of things. Um, It's just that we have different market focuses and we often have different tools that we apply in our work. The um, process, um, because it's been going for some, some time, feels like quite a smooth one, just because it's quite gradual. So, you know, organizationally over time, we adopt kind of shared approaches to things. You might pick up an Accenture way of doing things and replaces a way that previously existed. But there are reverse examples as well. So um, one of the things that Alpha Beta did very well was um, look at issues of um, reviewing the performance of our consultants on projects against a standardized framework of expectations for their level. Providing that feedback very regularly to people every um, six weeks maximum about how they're progressing allowing people to then make those adjustments and really having a strong focus of on-project and on-the-job development. And then that culminates in empirical scores such that over the end of the year, you've got a really great understanding of the, the work you've been doing, the feedback you've been getting, and, and there's no like, surprise at the end of the year with your performance rating, or for some people if that translates to things like bonuses and pay rises, there's a really empirical and objective way of doing that a really refined way, but also one in which that was really human and Mm. empathetic. And that's become the standard way that we do that across all of Accenture strategy now. So picking up some of the great approaches that we used to have in Alphabeta and then adopting them, that merger, uh, like whatever the best idea is, we'll keep that, is a really important spirit of the acquisition and I think is really worth calling out.
1: Yeah, cool. And was there like a big change in kind of like the culture of the team or do you think you know, has has the Accenture strategy or like the Accenture culture kind of like such to develop? Um, or do you think you guys still have a really strong identity? Yeah,
2: I, I mean, I think that there's different ways, there's different answers to that question. There's So there really is a hugely strong culture of things that we share interests with in the Economic Insights branch. And what we do is we bring other people into that. So there's been a lot of people inside Accenture that had said, oh, I really love that kind of work. Can we come along to your training sessions or your brown bag lunches where we talk about some of the work that we do? Um, We've found that other parts of Accenture around the world resonate with what we're doing because there isn't necessarily an equivalent to us in every part of the world in Accenture's global practice. So we get um, brought into the conversations, um, and we get access to clients from around the world. So that's been a really great thing. Um, In terms of the culture, though, we're also able to talk with our peers about things that interest us. Like We can nerd out on the latest ABS stuff that comes out or the public policy things that are happening. Um, We're we're all um, intensely interested in sustainability outcomes in government. In, you know macroeconomics, the things that are the core to our business, the people that are in it, we care about it and, and we would talk about it you know uh, over drinks and that, that absolutely still persists right um, as, it, as it should and as it does for other people doing other things in extension right So uh, I think in a big organization you'll, you'll always have uh, both a parent culture and you know little micro cultures and they coexist quite happily. And my take is that that's what's going on with the economic insights team yeah. and Accenture strategy. That sounds really I mean. cool. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, so, just for some of our listeners um, who are all you know aspiring consultants, um, could you provide us with kind of like a brief timeline of how, it pro- like a project from start to mm. finish? Um, I guess like from the first client meeting to the final deliverable. Yeah, what that looks like. Look, these. Uh, I
2: mean, maybe you'd expect this answer, but it's pretty variable. Mm. The, I guess the median. Um, project for us uh, is something like an eight-week project. So in an eight-week project um, with the structure being a a couple of analysts who would be in their first few years out of university, um, albeit we do have a number of people coming as lateral hires into that, consultants who have been there for a bit longer, a manager um, uh, on the project, a director like myself and then uh, maybe a small amount of time from a managing director or two. Be like a typical team structure for us. Um, And engagements at that eight week kind of um, project are often fairly intense. So first week is is establishing who's doing what, what is the nature of the problem, have we confirmed that this is exactly what the client's looking for, what are the data sources we're going to use, who's um, going to run the different work streams. There might be one person principally working on Data analysis and technical outcomes, and other working on, say, stakeholder um, interviews and the kind of qualitative component. Uh, hypothesis answer, you know, very early on in week week one, uh, often day one of the project, and then an iteration of that as the data comes in, either the data through stakeholder processes and interviews, the data through other qualitative research, and the data that's emanating from the empirical research that we would we'd undertake. Um, And so you know, there's a kind of startup phase, that kind of analysis phase in the middle, and then the last couple of weeks being um, often about testing our assumptions, making sure that we go back to the stakeholders and say, this is what the data is telling us, do you think this is resonating with you? And then pulling together the kind of final recommendation. So this is a very traditional strategy consulting kind of format. What I would say um, to that, though, is the median probably hides some of the really great um, range of outcomes of, of project types that we have. So, you know, while that's, the, while that's in a sense, typical, I'm currently running a project that's a year-long project. Wow. Okay. Um, and there are only a few of those, but it's not like we, we kind of always have a couple of those in our stable. Um, that project is a large project with a federal government organisation, um, and we're looking at early childhood education. Mm. We're examining the data that comes in from um, the childcare subsidies, and looking at how that affects the functioning of the childcare market, accessibility, the degree to which childcare is either a um, an enabler of female participation and workforce participation in general, or a barrier to it. where there are thin markets in the provision of childcare, there are really deep and and um, profound questions uh, that work to establish that is a year long, because the amount of data is huge. Mm. The sources are varied, uh, and they're not all held um, by the federal government. A lot of them are held by other federal agencies or the states. Um, and bringing together the framework for analysis is, is a large task, right? So you know that task, where it broadly has a similar team structure, going for a year is really, really different. Um, and the nature of the depth of the schools we're requiring in data analysis, data science on, on economic concepts. But of course, also on engagement, right? Yeah. We're talking with, uh, we're talking with the, uh, with the sector, we're talking with the states and territories a lot. We're engaging with, um, you know, uh, users of the services, um, and it requires a really huge investment in different skill sets there too. So um, there's a there's a huge range, right? Yeah. And and I think the other thing to say is that sometimes we'll have very very short term stuff. We'll have two week projects, right? And they're often a little bit different too, right? You might not have all of the formality and structure it might be a very lightweight deliverable or something that is um and very early helping helping a, a business or a government think through a problem you know in a very it's very early stages um, but those projects can also have significant public impact as well so yeah there's a there's quite a variety and i think maybe reflecting on some of the stuff i was saying earlier that variety is itself a draw card for me and often some of the people that work with us you know they, that is actually you know, one of the things that keeps you engaged in consulting for a long time is a variety, not just of the clients or of the the project questions you're asked, but obviously the project structure and and yeah. project type itself.
1: Yeah. Do you do you have a, any personal preference in terms of like the length? Do you enjoy these year-long um, projects, or you know, it's
2: a really different experience for me as a director mm-hmm. than it is as consultants working on the project. Um, and I think that's something to bear in mind, right? So for our analysts and consultants, this will be typical of other firms too, they would be staffed 100% on one project, almost all of the time. Right. It's pretty inefficient from a consulting business perspective to do anything other than that. Um, and so those people are very deep, but that's their world. They'll be living on that project for eight weeks yep. or sometimes for you know 12 months. And that isn't always aligned to people's preferences, right? If you're a graduate and you come in and you spent the entire year working on one project. Mm-hmm. You'll have a very deep knowledge in one area and you maybe haven't rounded out your skills in a whole bunch of different areas. You might find yourself on a qualitative work stream and then you haven't developed your skills in um, in, a, in the empirical analysis components or vice versa. Um, you might be stuck in public sector stuff when you'd really like to be doing something else. So from an analyst's perspective and a consultant's perspective, that's really different. From my perspective, I have a partial staffing on a range of different projects. I'll have three, four... Five projects on the go at a time. Wow. In which case, that variety is inherent in my work, and I really enjoy it. Yeah. And there's not a huge difference for me between um, the 12-month project and the eight-week project. They can be impactful and engaging and uh, mentally challenging, all in their own ways. So, yeah. I think yeah, it's really important to distinguish that. Um, and I'm really um, fond of the way that my work structure breaks down. Yeah. Um, but it isn't. It isn't representative of everyone in the yeah. firm.
1: I think a really key skill for consultants to have is um, problem identification as well as the ability to dissect problems. I was wondering if you have any kind of like personal framework that you like to use or abide by when you dissect issues and problems.
2: Yeah, I'm not that kind of guy. Like um, I know strategy consultants that have their own kind of way of thinking about things and, and I've used this before and I've honed this. Mm. Um, one of the things that I really like about consulting is that each problem to me is a learning opportunity and it still is the thing that gets me going the most after many years of consulting is solving new problems. And so while it's important to bring my history and experience, I don't come with like one of these five frameworks is the one that's going to work, right? I kind of take a very open first principles view. What is this client? What is this problem? What is the impact that we'd like to see in the world and the change we'd like to see? What is the context that sits around it in terms of the political context, or environmental workforce, or what have you, and and really build that from the ground up. Mm. And I think that 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 um, isn't a right or wrong way, but it's it is it is my way. Mm. And I think that the ability to create a structure and a framework um, is actually one of the core strategy consulting skill sets.
1: Yeah,
2: and some of that comes through experience, some of that comes through the application of existing, more traditional, well-known frameworks. Um, but some of that is actually just like grunt of IQ right. and, and EQ, mm. right? It, it really is. Um, it's just, you know, there, there are elements that are teachable uh, there are elements that come with practice and experience, but some of it's just like, how can you pull something together that cuts through and simplifies complexity in a way that's insightful? Uh, and impactful and, and works with the client context. So for me, you know, that history uh, and the work that I've done previously, that's all important. They're, they're inputs, but um, certainly certainly wouldn't say that I've got a, like a little portfolio or a bag of of those. Bag of checks. <laughs> no.
0: Um, so given your extensive history working in and alongside governments and other parts of the public sector. What is your view on the adoption of innovative models of policy development and what are some examples of these models
2: yeah it's a it's a good question so maybe i'll speak to my time um working at the prime minister's department in new zealand um i was very lucky to work under a great leader there um, in a part of the department called the policy project and the policy project was about not specifically about solving policy problems but was about helping government adopt the tools to solve policy problems and then co- and co-working with parts of government to, to apply those. And the, the thing that I really liked um, moving from Deloitte, previously then into that role at the Prime Minister's Department, was I was able to take some of the stuff that I was doing at Deloitte um, and apply it in one particular instance and then help that spread. And so that method... The innovative policymaking method there was, um, again, a very empirical one. Um, they have uh, a, a data infrastructure in New Zealand, which I don't think we really have an equivalent to in Australia, called the integrated data infrastructure. And what this does is it collects um, ad- administrative data from different government departments and stitches it together to be able to see patterns and stories about individuals that might exist um, in an anonymized and, and kind of ethical and de-identified way. An example of this was the um, work that's being done to find the links between um, people's parental circumstances and their own individual life outcomes. And the application I was doing at Deloitte was applying this to the vulnerable um, children's sector. And, and analyzing the data about children that were at risk of going into state care or um, you know, finding themselves in a juvenile um, justice situation, and he looked at that cohort and said, "What do we know about them? And what can we what can we do to um, understand more about them and try to prevent the, those events happening to them before they happened?" You could then kind of look at the family situation of those people, and some some really interesting things emerged. Right, by looking at that data, um, we found, for example, that there was a very high correlation between a mother not completing high school and children that were at, very risk, at very big risk of poor life outcomes. Um, we found relationships between maybe kind of obvious things like poor health, but also geographical differences in different parts of the country. There was concentrations of um, disadvantage and intergenerational disadvantage. And that data analysis allowed a really significant shift in policy because rather than shifting from the policy of um, looking after children uh, in, uh, who ended up in state care and then trying to make sure that they had the best life thereafter, the policy uh, logic shifted to how can we intervene before that event happens? What can we know about people and their family circumstances to say, well, if we in- invested money earlier in people's lives, maybe even in the lives of the mothers before that, we would, in fact, be able to prevent the, these outcomes happening in the first instance. So that shift from um, the care, you know, a really beautiful care mindset to a prevention mindset was a really fundamental di- difference driven by uh, this this view of of the data around individuals. And so that's an example of where I see really leading practice in New Zealand. Um, and that has been applied elsewhere um, but with with slightly less effect because the quality of the data is less uh, is less good and uh, what came with that was not just the idea of let's intervene more and let's intervene in these very clearly specified ways but also let's change the shift from funding outcomes like paying for care and um, you know services that support children at risk to shifting much more money into into the prevention and being able to justify the business case for doing so right because it prevents spending later in life so again a great example of this is that if a person ends up in jail there's a really significant cost to the state for just paying for them to be there and it, we could we could spend you know a really really small fraction of that um, very early in their life in investing in early childhood education in mental health in family supports that Uh, perhaps prevented those people from ending up in jail and then we would both have a better outcome for that individual and their family and society but also have a lower fiscal exposure in terms of government so it's a bit of a win-win so that kind of um, innovation in public policy really is exciting to me and the idea then to take that you know through the prime minister's department and say well how could we apply that in different sectors how can we apply that in government in environment for example where we can protect the environment in a way that produces a benefit later on, right? That kind of stuff. How can we apply that situation in policing or or so on and so forth, domestic violence?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like taking that kind of preventative approach is really important. Um, And so in a lot of the stories and experience that you shared today, there was this emphasis on data and like the ability to interpret data and analyze it. So I guess for some of our students, um, what do you think are some key skills that they should equip themselves as they go into their professional careers that you think are really relevant.
2: Yeah, I mean, maybe obviously I'll tell you about the data skills because that's the theme of the conversation in one way. So, you know, at a, at a minimum, um, our analysts are, are working in a kind of, um, you know, very advanced Excel model type scenarios, uh, economic models, or um, more often, Using languages like Python and R to be able to produce really interesting stuff. There is a small percentage where we're doing um, more advanced machine learning um, algorithms and techniques as well. That is that applies to a a smaller percentage, and we have a kind of a data science track within our organisation that um, does the kind of more advanced elements of that. And I think making sure that you come with a really strong skill set in data analysis is like a table stakes for us. It's, it's almost minimum criteria. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of part one of the answer. Part two of the answer is um, empathy and human skills and the ability to apply that in really nuanced and um, yeah human-centered ways. Yeah. Um, it's it's absolutely insufficient to be proficient um, in the the data side without having the kind of uh, emotional intelligence to be able to understand how to apply that, where to apply that, um, the limitations of what that's able to be uh, able to be told through through data, and to have the, um, I guess the. The maturity really to be able to see other perspectives on the data, right? To um, be able to, for example, work in our qualitative streams and work through the empirical components as well as the qualitative components, to say, well, how might this, how might this impact? What what are people going to be able to feel when they see this? Why would people support this or not support this, right? Um, and the two, this I guess the standard for extension strategy is to require both, right? Um, uh, of those dimensions to your character and skill set um, t- to, to do a great job, right? And maybe the last part of that is, you know, this is maybe less of a skill set, but is really um, that social awareness, right? What is going on in the world? Um, how are you tapped into that? And how can you bring what's going on in the world to the questions you you're being asked and the answers that you're giving, right? How do you situate them in context? And so for me, 180 degrees consulting is a great example of that, right? Because, and and why there's such a great relationship between people that have worked at 180 and who work um, for us at Accenture Strategy, is that um, the experience of having done the work, um, working with clients, working with data, working with social issues, um, and demonstrating commitments to not just the quality of the work but the quality of the impact that it has in society all of those things are really like they're, they're all yeah. core yeah, right they're, 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 neither of them can be you, you neither of them can be left out um and it's not not always the case that all graduates are are equally represented in all of those but that's really kind of what we're looking for as an architect
0: Yeah, well, that is all the time we have for today. Again, I just wanted to say thank you so much, Jason, for joining us today. Um, It's been an absolute privilege to have you with us today, and I'm sure our listeners feel the same. Great. Thank you.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed being here today.